Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. You're about to hear the Madame Butterfly Effect. This is a short piece I did for a collaborative episode with several other history podcasters where we explored the unpredictable downstream effects of different historical events. If you're into the longer episodes and series, don't skip this one. I think you'll really like it. I really enjoyed making it. If you enjoy this uh, this podcast, please consider subscribing to my Substack page where I post supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes, including interviews available to subscribers only for just $5 a month or $50 a year. To all of you who are already contributing, I really appreciate you allowing me to do this. I hope you like this episode. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion? Hey, you guys. Did you ever listen to that debate a few years ago between Dan Carlin and Sam Harris? Sam Harris was trying to make the case that the suicide tactics we see among Muslim militants were unique, and that they're the result of Muslim convictions regarding afterlife rewards for martyrs. And Dan was countering those arguments by pointing out other historical examples of warriors fighting to the last man and embracing an ethos that amounted to an affirmation of battlefield suicide. Dan brought up the Spartan 300, he brought up Tamil suicide bombers, and of course, eventually he brought up Japanese kamikazes. And that reminded me of an interesting connection, and that's the connection that I'm going to tell you about now. Now, Daniele tells me I got like 15 or 20 minutes to get through this, and we got to cover more than a century and go from Germany to Russia to Japan, from Japan to the Middle East, and from there back to Germany and all the way home to the U.S. of A. So I'm going to go a little faster than you're used to me going. Let's get this show on the road. Now, what do we know about Karl Marx? I'll start there. Karl Marx was a bearded man. He was a father. Not a good one. He was always asking his buddy Fred for money. He was a German Jew, brought up as a Christian. As a child, it was said that he... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'll get to the point. In 1848, Karl Marx and his friend Friedrich released into the wild a manifesto, calling on the workers of the world to unite and throw off the yoke of the capitalist system that oppressed them. You know the story. And it didn't really take with workers at first which you can understand if you've ever tried slogging through Das Kapital after a 14-hour shift as a chimney sweep or a child laborer at a textile mill. But the intellectuals loved it. They began to talk about it and share it around, and the ideas spread and percolated, preparing the ground for a day when the teetering imperial system finally tottered and the historical dialectic finally swung things in their direction. Of course, that day came during the First World War, not without help from some friends. Marx and Engels are long dead and gone by now, but Marx's home country, Germany, is caught in a vice grip between the Entente powers and a battle to see whose society would essentially be the first one to completely collapse under its own weight. And so Germany's a little desperate. 
and they're looking around for ideas about how to help precipitate that collapse among their enemies before it comes home. And in the back of the room, there's this Russian exile living in Switzerland at the time with his hand up saying, pick me, pick me. Germany says, well, hey, we're already lobbing canisters of poison gas back and forth at each other, so why not? Whatever happens, it couldn't possibly be worse than this, right? Yeah. And so they put Vladimir Lenin and a bunch of his friends into a sealed train car, shipped them back to Russia with some guns and money and hope for the best. The plan worked out, though not for the best, and 70 years, one revolution, and 15 million Russian corpses after the publication of the Communist Manifesto, the world saw the emergence of the first Marxist state. Well, Germany lost the war anyway, and before long started regretting its hasty decision. Socialist uprisings popped off in half of Germany as the war was winding down, and those had to be put down by demobilized war veterans. I almost said demoralized, and that would have been equally true. The German revolutions were suppressed, but things were just getting started. The Red Army was marching west toward disarmed Germany, and Russian soldiers might have been sipping vodka and feasting at breadlines in Berlin as early as 1920 if the Poles hadn't stood tall against Trotsky at Warsaw that year. Still, things got worse. Soon, Lenin and Trotsky were out of the picture, and a guy named Stalin was in charge. And Germany is looking over the Polish fence at the Soviet Union and seeing mass killing and enslavement at a scale that was simply unacceptable when the victims were white people. Yeah, well, sort of white people. Soon enough, a guy with a funny mustache and even funnier ideas about who was to blame for all this would be in charge of Germany. And he had some strange ideas about who qualified as white people, or, or who qualified as people at all for that matter. In 1941, Germany said, okay, everyone, that communism thing, the Soviet Union, yeah, our bad. I, I mean, really, it's the Jews and we're the victims here, but our bad. But seriously, it's the Jews. And so we're going to go take care of that. And so they invaded the Soviet Union and taught the world a lesson about following men with untrustworthy mustaches because it was a huge mistake. For one, the world didn't share Hitler's conviction regarding who was to blame for the war. Some people even thought Hitler himself was a bit responsible. I know. And so, less than 30 years after Germany put Lenin on that train to Russia, the revolutionary state that Lenin founded turned around and utterly destroyed Germany. And the Soviet Union even had enough leftover manpower to throw a few hot ones at Germany's far eastern ally, Japan, for good measure. War occasionally makes for strange bedfellows. Germany and Japan didn't have a whole lot in common besides being ultra-violent empires on a racial superiority kick, but in some ways, they were a match made in heaven compared to the United States and the Soviet Union. The alliance between the headquarters of the global anti-capitalist revolution and the headquarters of global capitalism itself was never going to last long. And it didn't. Before the war was even over, gravity was starting to assert itself as the USA and the USSR started jockeying for position in the eventual peace. With Germany mopped up and Soviet soldiers over there in Germany not really busy with anything besides carrying out the largest campaign of mass rape in human history, Stalin wiped out a Japanese army in Manchuria and prepared the Red Army for a joint invasion of the Japanese home islands. Of course, things didn't play out that way. FDR died, and President Truman took office, wondering about how he's going to possibly prepare the American people for the coming bloodbath on the final push to Tokyo when his military guys show up and say, Boss, 
You're going to love this. We have got this bomb that you are not going to believe. It is like, oh. And so Truman's like, sweet, yes, let's definitely do that instead. And so we nuke a couple cities and bluff that maybe we could keep doing this all day long. Japan surrenders and the invasion goes into the file of historical what-ifs. Soviet soldiers are happy because they don't have to get butchered in human waves taking Japanese islands. Stalin is sad because he doesn't get to spread the revolution. The Japanese people? Well, it depends on who you asked. Some historians speculate that if the war hadn't ended when it did, Japan might have ended up geographically divided between a communist north and a capitalist south like North and South Korea, an outcome most Japanese people today are probably pretty happy to have avoided. But some of the workers of the world lived in Japan, and back then some of them wanted to unite. They may not have had fond memories of the empire, but they didn't like being under the thumb of American capitalists either. One of those people was the heroine of our story, Lady Fusako Shigenobu. Lady Fusako was born in September 1945, literally when Hiroshima and Nagasaki are still smoldering. Her father had been a major in the Imperial Army, but after the war was over, he was a lowly shopkeeper who struggled even to put food on the table. Lady Fusako grew up poor, so poor that she was mocked by other children for her run-down home and ratty clothes. She hated her poverty. She hated the other children for making fun of her and the teachers for allowing and encouraging it. Over time, her hatred of her childhood oppressors would grow into a burning hatred for all oppressors, and her hatred of her own poverty into a hatred of poverty as such. Lady Fusako was smart and diligent, but her parents couldn't afford her education beyond high school, so she put herself through college by dancing at a topless bar, and there wasn't a day that she danced that she didn't hate that too. Quote, I hated the men who pawed at me. I had murder in my heart. I saw every kiss turn into a rice ball for the Red Army. End quote. In the late 1960s, she attended a student protest against proposed tuition hikes, and it was there that she finally found her people. She deepened her involvement in the student movement and soon became radicalized, participating in violent demonstrations in 1968. When her boss back at the bar suggested that she should just get married and settle down, Lady Fusako Shigenobu famously shot back, Revolution is my lover. It was around this time that she found her way to a small, ragtag group of student revolutionaries calling themselves the Japanese Red Army. Now, even in communist circles at the time, Japan was pretty traditional about gender roles, so like all the other young female revolutionaries, Fusako was put to work running errands and performing other menial tasks, while the men plotted the revolution. But there wasn't a man in that organization that was ready for the woman who would become known to many in the world revolutionary movement as Matahari, and more popularly by the name bestowed upon her by the global press, the Red Queen of Terror. In March 1970, the JRA made its first move. On a Japan Airlines flight out of Tokyo, several young passengers seated at the back of the plane stood up in uncapped long tubes meant for carrying fishing poles and drew out of them samurai swords. It was the first plane hijacking in Japanese history. They ordered everyone to stay in their seats and storm the pilot's cabin, demanding passage to North Korea. That's right, they wanted to go to North Korea. The pilots explained that there wasn't enough fuel to make it there and that they would have to land in South Korea first to take on some more, and the hijackers reluctantly consented. 
In good Japanese fashion, the hijackers apparently were exceedingly polite. One American hostage later said that they ought to be offered jobs by the airline. Quote, they'll make good stewards. They cleaned up ashtrays, picked up the paper from the floor, and even brought me a magazine to read, end quote. The captain had a little bit different impression, but then he had spent the entire flight with a sword pressed up to his back. Well, in South Korea, the airport was surrounded by police by the time the plane landed, and so negotiations ensued. The hijackers agreed to release all their hostages except the pilots in exchange for the Japanese vice minister of transportation. Once their new hostage was on board and secured, they flew to North Korea, at which point the hostages were released and Kim Il-sung welcomed them all as comrades of the revolution. And the hijackers remained in North Korea for 20 years plotting attacks and kidnappings. There were other hijackings, but Lady Fusako was not really optimistic about the possibility of revolution in Japan. In 1970, the JRA received a visit from an Iraqi revolutionary seeking to establish ties with their organization. And during that visit, he suggested that the Japanese Red Army come and join the fight at the heart of the global revolution, which at the time was the Middle East. From the formation of the State of Israel in 1948 until 1967, the Palestinians had placed their hopes for repatriation with the surrounding Arab countries. But after the catastrophe of the Six-Day War, they decided to take matters into their own hands and change tack and embark on the path of revolution that had seemed to work so well for Algeria against France in 1962. In 1970, with the revolution languishing in conservative Japan, the Japanese Red Army decided to take its show on the road and go make a name for itself on the world stage. The Palestinians had the righteous cause, but the JRA believed that the demoralized Arabs lacked spiritual fervor, those were their words, and that they would benefit from a lesson or two in the bonsai spirit. Now at the time, Lady Fusaka was forbidden from leaving Japan due to her revolutionary activities, but she wasn't going to let something like that stop her. She married another militant named Takeshi Yokudera, got identification papers with her new name, and then quickly left the country before the watch list could be updated to reflect the change. Once she arrived in Lebanon, she quickly made contact with comrades in the revolution with the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, which is a communist group working under the banner of Yasser Arafat's PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Lady Fusako soon became close with the leader of the PFLP, and the two became lovers. We have no record what her Japanese husband thought about this arrangement, because Lady Fusako eliminated that complication quickly. When the PFLP requested that the Japanese revolutionaries plan an action to avenge a recent failed plane hijacking, Lady Fusako ordered a suicide attack on the Lod airport in Tel Aviv to demonstrate the effectiveness of kamikaze-style attacks to what at the time were suicide-averse Arabs. And her husband was one of the three men that she selected for the honor of carrying out this suicide mission. He and the two other men trained for six or seven weeks at a Palestinian camp, which to be honest, in retrospect, seems a little bit excessive. This is not exactly a Delta Force or SEAL Team 6 operation. On the morning of the planned attack, the three men received check rifles and 90 rounds of ammunition plus hand grenades in their hotel rooms, personally delivered by Lady Fusako. With Israeli security on the lookout for Arab terrorists, these three Japanese men, dressed conservatively and carrying violin cases, slipped unnoticed through the crowds milling about the baggage area. As a group of religious pilgrims from Puerto Rico waited for their luggage, the three men retreated to a far wall and opened up their cases. 
Shots rang out, and in a few moments, dozens of bodies were on the ground. Two of them are firing submachine guns wildly, while the third is pulling pins on hand grenades and lobbing them into scattering crowds. Then he starts lobbing his hand grenades at a plane waiting on the ground outside. Out of ammunition, one of the shooters threw a grenade on the ground and jumped on top of it. Another had been killed by accidental friendly fire. The third terrorist, named Kozo Akamoto, ran outside to throw his final grenade at a grounded plane, but failed and was caught and arrested. Many of those killed were from the group of Puerto Rican visitors. If people struggled to understand what this latest innovation of globalization was all about, why were there Japanese people in an Israeli airport killing Puerto Rican Christians to support Arabs who hated Jews? Kozo Akimoto was put on trial in Israel, and his father wrote a short letter to the Israeli court. Quote, for 40 years, I thought I had devoted myself faithfully to the education of our young people. Please execute my son without delay, end quote. Kozo himself demanded to be executed, or at least to be permitted to commit suicide, rejecting his lawyer's attempts to mount an insanity defense on his behalf. Israeli interrogators agreed to provide him with a gun and a bullet with which to kill himself if he confessed and explained his motives, and so he did. Quote, when I was a child... I was told that when people died, they became stars. We three Red Army soldiers wanted to become Orion when we died. And it also calms my heart to think that all the people we killed will all become stars in the same heavens. As the revolution goes on, how the stars will multiply, end quote. He explained that he had nothing against the Israeli people, but that he had done his duty as a soldier of the revolution. Of course, the Israelis did not give him a gun. He was sentenced to life in prison. Shortly after he was put in prison, Kozo Akimoto converted to Islam. But then shortly after that, he said that he was converting to Judaism and was found attempting to circumcise himself with a pair of nail clippers. Finally, in 1975, three years after the airport attack, he announced that he had become a Christian. Kozo Akimoto was eventually released in 1985 as part of a prisoner exchange with the Palestinians, and he was received in Libya as a hero by Lady Fusako. The JRA's spectacular attack on the Lode airport brought their group to everyone's attention. The attack directly inspired a group that would make even bigger headlines with a bonsai attack of its own later in the same year. That group was called Black September, and it was formed from many of the most militant members of the PLO, many of them drawn from the communist PFLP. The 72 Munich Olympics were supposed to be Germany's opportunity to erase everyone's memory of the last time we let them host this event in 1936 under the regime of the guy with the funny mustache. The last thing, like literally if you were to make a list of 10 million things that they absolutely did not want to have happen, the very last thing on the list would be for a bunch of psychos to show up and start murdering Jews. And so, of course, that's what happened. And to make the nightmare even worse, the killers had German help. See, after the Second World War, the European left looked with a great deal of sympathy upon the Zionist project. Understandably, right? The Jews had been through a lot, and so Israel got a little bit of a grace period. But that support started to show cracks after Israel helped Imperial Britain and Imperial France against Nasser in the Suez Crisis of 1956, and then after the 67 War and the subsequent occupation of the Palestinian territories, much of the European left turned on Israel altogether. In fact, in many quarters of the left, Israel came to be seen as the vanguard of fascism and imperialism. 
cleverly disguised, to be sure. I mean, what better way to disguise the new Nazism than as a Jewish state, right? People actually still used the old anti-fascist slogan, we are all German Jews. You would still hear it chanted and printed on protest signs, but now you would see and hear that slogan at protests against Israel. And we are all German Jews had actually come to mean we are all Palestinians. And the Germans, the Germans were more neurotic about this than anyone, as you can imagine. Communist East Germany was more vociferous in its opposition to Israel than any other European country at the time. They actively supported Arab terrorist groups. The West German anti-fascist movement, which was far stronger and more aggressive in its opposition to imperialism and fascism than any other in Europe, for obvious reasons, once the worm turned against Israel, therefore embraced anti-Zionist sentiment most emphatically as well. The future German Green Party foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, traveled to Algiers in 1969 for a PLO convention at which the organization pledged to wipe Israel off the map. Left-wing German militants established ties to Palestinian groups, often sending their own people, such as the Badr-Meinhof Red Army Fraction, to Jordan or Lebanon to train with the Palestinians. German fascist groups would also send their members to train at the Palestinian camps, actually, and they were accepted because they didn't like Jews. Many of the German leftists were themselves Jewish, and so you sometimes had these very strange situations where German-Jewish left-wing militants were training to take the war back home to Germany, while literally on the other side of the same camp were German anti-Jewish right-wing militants doing the same thing for the exact opposite reason. And so when Black September attacked the Israeli Olympic team at Munich in 1972, it was with help from the German anti-fascist group called the Revolutionary Cells to get through security. Many in the German left, like Ulrike Meinhof, applauded the ensuing massacre of 11 Israelis and one West German police officer. The same Revolutionary Cells would do their part to combat Nazism again in 1976, hijacking an Israeli airliner and redirecting it to Entebbe, Uganda, with demands in support of the Palestinian cause. They separated the Israelis from the non-Israelis, with the Israelis slated for execution in case the operation went awry so that the world witnessed the odd spectacle of Germans performing Auschwitz-like selections as they prepared to mass-murder Jews in the name of fighting Nazism. Incidentally, the leader of the rescue operation, the Israelis mounted, one of the most spectacular special operations of all time, was future Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, and all the terrorists were killed, and only one hostage died, and one Israeli soldier was killed, and that Israeli soldier happened to be Jonathan Netanyahu, brother of the current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It was the French author Paul Virilio who reported that it was Lady Fusako and the JRA who had successfully made the case for suicide attacks to the Arab militants. After the Lod airport attack, Arab guerrilla tactics changed to reflect the new philosophy, with groups of militants launching attacks designed for maximum carnage with little to no hope for survival. It was just a few years later, there in Lebanon, that the kamikaze idea was embraced fully, and the human bomb has since become the signature move of Muslim militant groups. Now I'm going to recap this story, and it's still not going to make any more sense than it did the first time through. A German named Marx invents an ideology called communism. During the First World War, Germany put a handful of communists on a train to Russia to foment a revolution which spawned the Soviet Union. A generation later, the Soviet Union destroys Germany and plants some seeds in Japan, 
Those seeds grow into the Japanese Red Army, which followed a former topless dancer to the Middle East, which adopted the Imperial Japanese technique of the kamikaze, and because fate was not yet finished with Germany, some of those Arab militants show up and start murdering Jews in Munich, only this time it was not for German imperialism or Nazism, but for anti-imperialism and anti-Nazism. And finally, by way of that circuitous path, some Arab militants who by now have made the kamikaze attack they learned from Japanese communists their weapon of choice struck at the heart of the capitalist world with four airliners on September 11, 2001. Now Marx thought he'd discovered a scientific theory that allowed him to map out the whole history of the future, but I'll bet even he never saw that coming.